Kirkwood. So as the shutdown continues, I realized that there was many things that I had missed that we did prior to the shutdown. In the before times. In the before times, yes. So the thing that I miss the most is seeing the authors and them coming in and doing the author talks. One event that we missed was the One Author, One Kirkwood event that Kirkwood Public Library hosts every year. It's one of our favorite shows, and it was sad that we couldn't have it this April. So, Kirkwood, we are not completely left in the wind. Not completely at all. In fact, our One Author, One Kirkwood has been rescheduled to October 20th. And to tie this over, Lisa C. will be joining Jagisha and I. We'll be discussing her work, her research, her latest book, The Island of Sea Women, amongst many other things. So, tune in. It's going to be a One Author, One Kirkwood show. This week on the recommendation section of your KPL podcast, Jagisha and I will be talking about Own Voices titles. Jagisha, would you tell us what is Own Voices? So the term Own Voices was coined by the writer Corinne Dalvis and refers to an author from a marginalized or underrepresented group about their own experiences from their own perspective, rather than someone from an outside perspective writing as a character from an underrepresented group. And I think it's fair to say we need diverse books and we need them like yesterday. We do, and thing is that many readers are demanding own voices books. So everyone's looking for a little more diversity in what they are reading. And so just ahead, here's a few titles that we think fit that bill. Jagisha, would you share with us the first? So my first book is The Interpreter of Maladies by Humpa Lahiri. This is actually a short collection of short stories. And it was the 2000 Fiction Pulitzer Prize winner. Ooh. So the author is, she was raised in England, uh, but she's also from Indian descent. And I guess she currently lives in New York City. She also wrote the book The Namesake, which was turned into a movie. So you might be familiar with her work a little bit. But this, I love the short stories because they're just, she's one of these great short story writers. I don't. We don't often talk about short story writers because there's a definite art to short stories, and she does an amazing job. And you get some of the Indian American experience, and just, and also she talks, she focuses more on just India itself and so forth. So you get you get a variety of of stories from different perspectives. That sounds pretty good too, and I love a short story book. Me too. So I highly recommend this one. The library has it. So mine for this week is going to be Clap When You Land. It's the newest book by Elizabeth Acevedo. It is based off of a true story, but it's essentially a a novel told by two young women, one being Camino Rios, uh, who lives in the Dominican Republic, and the other, Yahira Rios, who lives in New York City. And both of their lives change one fateful day when their father perishes in an airplane crash, and they learn that he had a secret family. And suddenly, both young women have a sister that they never knew about. And so the story basically progresses from there. It's a fantastic novel about, like, love and loss and having to deal with a secret life that was kept from you by a family member and having to come to terms with how much do we truly know about anyone and quite a bit about forgiveness. It is a lovely book. It is is winning awards left and right. Elizabeth uh, Acevedo is also the author of The Poet X, 
and with, with the Fire on High. And both books I recommend as well. But yes, this is your news. It came out in May, and I recommend it. It's called Clap When You Land, and it is a it is a story about forgiveness and hope. Anyway, this was a this sounds like a really interesting book. I think I'm going to have to put it on my my uh, list, my ever expanding list of books to read. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, New York Times bestseller, and it is it is very good, it, and it makes it all the more poignant that it is based off of a true story. My book is also by another Indian author, actually. Um, the author is Sarah Desai, and the title of the book is The Marriage Game. So as you may know, you know, arranged marriages are a common thing among the Indian culture. Probably not so much now as it used to be. Anyway, so this book is, a, is kind of a romantic comedy about arranged marriages. So you have your protagonist, Layla, who is first-generation immigrant from India, and her parents run a restaurant, but they're very traditional, and then her father wants her to have a traditional arranged marriage. And so he signs her up for a IndianGirlMatch.com site without telling her, yeah. and she has to go on these dates. She ends up meeting a guy who is from a similar background. He happens to be the CEO of a corporation, but his family is also first-generation immigrants with very traditional beliefs. And so they also want him to have the arranged marriage. He thinks it's not a great thing because his sister went through it and isn't didn't have a very good experience. So somehow these two characters get thrown together. He ends up being her chaperone while she's going on these dates. But they seem to start feel, having feelings for each other. So that's the book. But I think it'll be, it sounds like a fun book. and It sounds like a good rom-com. Yeah, essentially a rom-com. I highly recommend it. It's an own voices book, but it's light and just a fun read. Well, sounds like a perfect summer read, something to kick back and and enjoy. Exactly. What do you think of our recommendations, Kirkwood? And would you share your own with us? Please leave a comment and let us know. Much like myself, I think it's fair to say that all our patrons were saddened by the postponement of our annual One Author, One Kirkwood event. Well, exciting news. To help tide us over... Our special guest today is none other than the multi-award-winning and OAOK author herself, Lisa C. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So our first question for the day is for that one patron who is unfamiliar with you. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Jeez, that's a hard one to start off with. <laughs> well, uh... Let's see. I'm the author of about a dozen books. I started out as a journalist. My mother was a writer. My mother's father was a writer. So I'm a third generation writer. I feel like in a way I had a lifelong apprenticeship uh, of writing. And I, sometimes I joke around, it's a good thing they weren't plumbers, but gosh, why couldn't they have been brain surgeons? And I do write mostly about China and the Chinese American experience. But for my last, most last and most recent book, The Island of Sea Women, that one takes place on an island off the tip of South Korea. So I'm kind of broadening my horizons around the Pacific Rim. Very nice. So I understand that you do quite a bit of research, an extensive amount of research for your books. So could you talk a little bit about the research that you do um, in preparation? Research is my absolute favorite, favorite part of the writing process. 
to me, it's like a big treasure hunt. I, you know, I never know what I'm going to find. And so I do research all the, all the usual ways that people do. I, I actually, in normal times, live in Los Angeles, pretty close to UCLA. And I spend a lot of time in the research library there. I look on the internet to see what I can find. And of course, you know, we all have to be careful about what's on the internet. However, you can find some amazing things on the internet, and I have, and it's, it just always kind of blows my mind what's out there, just waiting for somebody to look for it. And then I always go to the places that I write about. I feel like, I mean, first of all, I, I always want to, if possible, interview the people who have lived through this history or are living in that culture. You know, for the Island of Sea Women, this is about these free divers, these women who take these deep breaths, go down about 60 feet, stay underwater two to four minutes, harvest seafood. They're the breadwinners in their families, and their husbands are the ones who take care of the children, do the cooking, take care of the house, take care of the elders. So, you know, this is a matrifocal society, a really unique culture. And so to actually get to go there and interview these women, most of whom were in their 70s, 80s, and early 90s, was just this incredible experience. So I, you know, but it's not just about interviewing people. I really try to capture all of the different senses. You know, what does a place smell like? What does mm -hmm. the air feel like? What does the food taste like? Um, you know, all of those senses so that what I hope, you know, is that readers sort of have almost like a sensory experience when they're reading one of my books. And because that's what I like, you know, that's what I like when I read a book. So I try to recreate that for, for readers as, as, as a reader myself first, and then for other readers too. I agree. I especially enjoy uh, food in, in books. So when, when, uh, and they're talking about the food experience. So I imagine, and just getting the entire sensory experience, especially for um, Island of Sea Women, just because they're diving and just being out at the sea and the smells and everything. Yeah, yeah and, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, on that island, they're known for three things. It's the three abundances, women, stones, and wind. And just even the wind, you know, like what is it, feel like in the morning? What does it feel like in the afternoon? What is it? I mean, it, it, this is a place that has a lot of wind. And, you know, what is it like when there's a typhoon or something like that that comes flying through? Mm -hmm. And that, you, you know, you can't really get that just from doing research. You know, you have to actually go and experience it, it seems to me. You know, is it humid? Is it dry? Is it wet, really wet and cold? How does that feel at different times of the year? Yeah, that's, uh, that's certainly most fascinating. Before, uh, uh, recently, I, I was looking at some online documentaries in the, uh, the Jeju Hanyo. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I've been staggering their, their feet of... I, uh, let's go strength. I mean, I'm just getting a slight bit of anxiety when I think about how mentally and physically controlled they must be to to do their diving and harvesting uh, from the ocean floor. And boy, that that has to take a lot of skill. Yeah, I have to say that that their physical courage and bravery 
is what really inspired me at the beginning. Um, they, they have these aphorisms. One of them is every woman who enters the sea carries a coffin on her back. And that's because this is a you know, really dangerous place. You can die from getting your hair tangled in, some, you know, in something. You can get tangled in seaweed. You can get a tool stuck in a rock. Uh, you can, one of the main ways that women died in the past, but all the way to today, is harvesting an abalone, which is very, very dangerous. Underwater currents that can sweep you away. And then just suppose, you know, maybe you're not the best diver, but you can hold your breath for two minutes. But let's just say that last night, mm, you didn't sleep well, or you had an argument with someone, or you didn't get enough to eat. So today you don't really feel like yourself. And there you are 60 feet under and you think, oh, I have two minutes, but maybe on this day you only have an, a minute and 45 seconds. That's a long way back to the surface situation. And a lot of women just drown, you know? But the, but the other thing is the more I learned about them, and the history of this island over the last, we'll just say 100 years. Japanese, you know, had um, this island, or had all of Korea as a colony. So Japanese colonialism, World War II, um, this time period called the 4-3 incident, where it was a massacre that happened, but over eight years and then 50 years of secrecy, plus the Korean War. So I, you know, started out being just so inspired by their physical courage. But over time, I think that was really overtaken by their psychological courage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're living in this very unique time right now, right? And I know for myself, there are days where I just am very down. I just think I'm never getting out of here. I'm never going to a movie again. I'm never going to get to travel. I'm never going to get to see my dad again. I mean, all these things that we're all living with. But we're so lucky. I mean, yes, things have, I mean, this has been a disaster. But we're so lucky in many ways that we live in it where and when we do. Because we don't. We, you know, we have not experienced an actual war on our soil since the Civil War. And so we don't have that, that experience of, of what it's like to have, you know, war and battles and things happening literally right outside your front door. And what that means and, and the courage that it takes to continue on. And, and, you know, I think about this a lot that we tend to learn history in terms of wars and dates, sort of the front line of history, right? Wars, dates, presidents, generals, prime ministers. But if you take one step back, who's there? It's women, it's children, it's families. And they're there for every single step of the way. And so while those battles and things are going on around them, they still need to have dinner and get go to school and be comforted. And, and those are the things that are continuing, you know, even in the worst circumstances, as we're experiencing in, in a certain kind of form right now. Yeah, absolutely. So just out of curiosity, how young do they start training? Little girls would start as soon as they could go in the water, five years old, and they would, they have these shallow, deeper, I guess, in a wading pool, but protected mm -hmm. from the ocean. And um, they might, you know, look for 
sea urchins or shells or rocks. One of the things that, in, especially in the past, that women were learning or girls were learning was how to overcome the cold. Mm -hmm. These women historically have the greatest ability of any human group on earth to withstand cold. Now they wear wetsuits, but you know, for, for centuries, they just would go in in this like little homemade diving suit. And Korea, it snows. They also do itinerant works where they would go to Japan, China, and China, the places that also snow in winter, but no place was colder than Vladivostok in winter. And they, again, were just diving in this freezing cold water. The only thing that was keeping it from turning into ice was the level of salt in the water. Oh, so wow. these were really, so they had to learn that, you know, there was a lot of uh, scientific studies in the late, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, trying to figure out, is this genetic or an adaptation? And it wasn't until women started wearing wetsuits in the early 1970s that they learned, oh yeah, this is definitely an adaptation because it was a three-year study within the first, after the first year, they'd lost 50% of their ability to withstand cold. And by the end of three years, it was gone completely. Uh, wow. That's so interesting. But they had to learn it, you know, as little, mm -hmm. little kids. I actually have on my website, um, a section called step in, and I have this for almost every book, but step inside the world of, you know, fill in the blank. So this is step inside the world for sea women. And I have some different videos. And one of them is a documentary that was done. I can't remember fifties or sixties. It's black and white. And it follows a little girl as she's learning how to become a diver. And there's this one scene where she and I'm going to say like four other little girls have come out of the water. They're sitting on a little bench on the boat, no blanket, no towel, no jacket, no heater. Nothing. I mean, they're just sitting there and shivering. <laughs> learning, you know, they're just learning how to take it. <laughs> Young, uh, young child Ryan would be on the floor of the boat crying. <laughs> so uh, recently I learned an interesting fact that you have a character that appears in nearly all of your titles. Can you tell us a little bit more about her? Yes, there is a character that has appeared in a different form, in all, always a female, in every single book. Uh, in and I could go, I won't do all of them, but I'll do some of them. So Island of Sea Women, it's Young Sook's mother-in-law. In Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, it's Ama. In The Mysteries, uh, it's the Neighborhood Committee Director. In Snowflower and the Secret Fan, it's the Matchmaker. But if you go all the way back to my first book, On Gold Mountain, which is a a nonfiction book that tells the history of the Chinese in America through the eyes of my family, you will find that it's my grandmother. And so I have gotten to write this sort of different version of my grandmother in all of these books. And she's been gone now for over 25 years. And it's been a way for me when I write her, you know, it's, it's like a way that we get to visit. Such a beautiful tribute. But it's, I actually don't think of it so much as a tribute as just this incredible gift from my, you know, that it just allows me to be with her. Crankiness. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, it's a nice way to yeah, it's a nice way to connect to, with her and, and bring her in all the books and it's like she's there with you as you're writing, you know. Exactly. So what advice do you have for aspiring authors or how do you, I guess there's this kind of a two-part question, how do you bring your complex characters to life? Like maybe just tell us a little bit about your process. <clears throat> Why don't I answer the one about aspiring, okay. advice, aspiring writers first? So I really just have two pieces of advice. The first one is to write a thousand words a day, five days a week. That's just four pages. And at the end of the week, you'll have a chapter. You'll have 20 pages. If you can't do that, you know, you can write 500 words a day, five days a week. That's 10 pages at the end of the week. You have 20, and that's a chapter. And, it, and this is not anything special. You have to just sit in a chair and do it. You know, that's, that's all there is to it. I actually keep a notebook where I keep, you know, the date and how many words I've written. And some days I can do it really quickly. And some days it's just torture and it takes me forever. And I know it's probably not very good, but I know I can fix it later. But if you don't actually sit in the chair and do the work, it's not going to just appear there magically. And then the second thing I say is to be really passionate about what you're writing. You know, I try to look at this as more, less like a one night stand and more like a marriage that writing does have its ups and downs. You know, there, <clears throat> there are times that the writing isn't going well or your editor doesn't like something or readers don't like something or what, you know, or critics are mean or all those things, like definite bumps in the road. But if you have your own passion that can kind of transcend all of that, that's what will keep you going and, and keep you inspired and also just attached to the stories. I mean, I feel very attached to the stories that I've written. And um, I mean, I always start from a place of what do I care about most? You know, what do I want to write? Um, but that's, again, where that passion comes in. And then your, the, the other question was, well, what, um, what was it? I already forgot. How do you create the complex characters? I was just going to say, if you want to just talk about your process, maybe. Um... Or, yeah, so how do you bring your complex characters to life? Was Yeah, so I will say that, I, well, I always start with three things. First, um, what's the relationship I want to write about? What's the emotion I want to write about? And then what's the historic backdrop? Mm -hmm. And can, can, should I use um, Island of Sea Women again? Or would yeah, you like absolutely. To? Yeah, so with that one, I knew the historic backdrop, that I wanted to write about these amazing diving women. Then I, and, and I had also been thinking about writing about forgiveness. And for those who are listening, who have read some of my books, you know that I've kind of tiptoed around forgiveness quite a bit. Um, and Snowflower and the Secret Fan, you know, they're two best friends, a bad thing happens, they break apart. But spoiler alert, Snowflower dies, and so she's so Lily is never forgiven, and the end of the novel is really more about atonement. Shanghai girls, two sisters, a bad thing happens. You're going to sort of see a theme here. They split apart, and that book actually required a, a sequel where the two sisters actually come to a place where they forgive each other, but they do it on separate continents 
They have no contact with each other. They only see each other on the last page. They have, don't even have a chance to talk on the last page. They just come back together. And so, you know, they've had to work it out individually. Mm -hmm. In China Dolls, Three Best Friends, Bad Thing Happens, the difference in that one is circumstances of their lives required that they work together, even though they never forgive each other. So you can sort of see I circled mm -hmm. around. And this one I wanted to look at, you know, forgiveness just straight on. And the thing is, forgiveness works on so many levels, right? It's one-on-one, -on -one, it's within families, it's with your neighbors, it's sometimes cultures and societies or countries. So all these different levels. And because of the actual history of Jeju Island, those things that I mentioned earlier, the Japanese colonial period, the 4-3 incident, and today this island is now internationally recognized as the island of peace. It's ranked with Rwanda and South Africa as um, cultures where they are now international models for forgiveness. So I thought if I had that, then I, you know, I knew now what the time period would be in that history part. I knew what my emotion was and how that tied into the history and then to the, to the main characters. And the Henyo divers, they actually follow a kind of buddy system in their diving. And so it's made a lot of sense to me that these would be best friends. But it has a whole other level than regular best friends, right? Because mm -hmm. every time these women go into the sea, they're literally putting their lives in each other's hands. So not only do you have just that regular friendship, but this is actually friendship with life and death kind of layered on top of it day to day. Well, I love how you're just interconnecting all the pieces together. Yeah, it's fascinating to hear, definitely. So being librarians, we love to ask this question, what are you currently reading or what should we be reading right now? I am currently reading, oh my gosh, it's, it's uh, I forgot the title. <laughs> Um, cause, because I'm not at home, I actually am reading on a Kindle, so I don't get to see the title every day, but it's a book about the history of plagues. Uh, I can't say it's terribly uplifting right now, but in its own weird way, it's kind of calming me down. And then, uh, I just got in the mail from Kevin Kwan, his new book that is not a sequel to the Crazy Rich Asians. It's a standalone book. So I'm looking forward to reading that. I think that will uh, transport me certainly to another place. My husband and I listen to audiobooks at night when we get into bed. He sets a timer for either eight or 15 minutes. And, and this is like being little kids. We, get, we have a story told to us every night and we will just absolutely love it. And we've read some really great books that way. Um, but the one we're reading now is called A Burning, and it's, it just came out this summer, and it's fantastic. It takes place in India, and there's a woman who has, um, she wrote something a little bit carelessly on Facebook, and she has been arrested. And so it has all these different characters and different perspectives and different readers, and it, it's great. So you can see we, we read and listen to books in all kinds of forms. And some great recommendations there. So on your, your next book, are you possibly considering something about plagues maybe in 
the people who are listening can't see this, but I'm going to hold it up for you guys to see. Here's the manuscript for the next book. Um, wow. I'm just doing the editing right now. Uh, and uh, they're, act, you know, and I've been working on this for two years, and there actually is a section in this book about the 1918 influenza. Oh, okay. neat. I've done so much research on that to, you know, make sure I got it accurate and all of that. But I thought after the COVID-19 hit, I thought, oh, I'm going to have to go back and rework that chapter. The only thing that I changed, or it didn't change, the only thing that I added was how really uncomfortable it is to wear a mask. You know, that kind of suffocating feel you sometimes, you know, some masks are easier to breathe through than others. But that was the one thing that that kind of claustrophobia that at least I get on occasion. Not that I always wear my mask, but when I go out, for sure. But I, I can't say I love it. Yeah, and yeah. the perspiration on glasses is no fun as well. No, I can't see the whole. <laughs> you're breathing and your glasses get all screwed up. And <laughs> I find that if I put my glasses over my mask, then that helps a little. Oh, that's a good tip. I probably need to try that because, yeah, mine have been fogging up as, as, we're, as we've been talking. <laughs> Reading about the uh, influenza pandemic, it, I did notice a lot of parallels to, to what's going on right now. It was amazing how very similar everything is. It is, isn't it? I mean, it's just amazing. And it shows not that we needed this lesson once again, but that we really don't learn from our mistakes. <laughs> yes. Then we're doomed to repeat it. Doomed. Just we're just doomed. <laughs> <laughs> so, if, if our patrons wanted to learn more about you, Lisa C, what would you recommend they do? Well, I have a website, and I, there's all kinds of stuff on the website for book clubs, and just if you're a reader and you want to know more about the history behind a particular book, again, that's that step inside the world of fill in the blank. I am on Instagram and I just uh, the other day posted I'm right now in Colorado that a bear broke into our house and stole a bag of pistachios. I saw a nice picture of the bear. Um, but I often have stuff about writing and then also on Twitter. I guess that, oh, and Facebook also. On Facebook, I, I post things twice a week, just thir usually Thursdays and Sundays. I try to have something that's about writing or my writing and my approach to writing. And then I also will always do once a week an interesting article or story that might relate to my work, but might not. It's just something that I'm interested in that I think other people will be interested in. So I, you know, I think between those four things, people can find out an awful lot about me. I try to have things be different on each of those different types of social media. And then the other thing is if anybody ever has a question or, you know, wants me to join their book club, there, you can just go to my website. There's a place that says, write Lisa. It comes right to me. I'm the only person who reads those emails. I'm the only person who responds. So please, no naked photos or anything like that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm pretty reachable. And I try, I just, you know, there are things I'm interested in. And 
every once in a while there's you know maybe a video or something like that that I think other people will be interested in and so you know I, I do put these things on in different ways out there uh, with slightly different perspectives maybe mm -hmm. so anyway I don't know that's it <laughs> some fantastic coverage unless there was anything else that you'd like us to talk about Lisa C or anything else you'd like to bring up the only thing I would like to add is that I'm looking forward to the day that I can be uh, in Kirkwood uh, in person and that we can all be together in one big room and uh, share our love of books and reading. Well said, that can't come soon enough for me. Our guest today was Lisa C. You can find her most recent title, The Island of Sea Women, and the rest of her catalog at your Kirkwood Public Library. Also, of course, wherever engaging books are sold. The One Author, One Kirkwood event will be held on Tuesday, October 20th, with location to be announced. Lisa C., it was so great to speak with you today. Thank you for making time. Thank you for having me. So there you have it. We hope this tied you over until October. It was fantastic to be able to talk to Lisa C. about her work, and we thank her for joining us. And as we leave, we're going to leave with a quote from Neil Gaiman. No two readers can or will ever read the same book, because the reader builds the book in collaboration with the author. Truer words never been said. See you next week, Kirkwood.